This is Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and these are the words that he pins. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. I've got five truths for you this morning on your outline. would encourage you to take notes. I think you'll listen better if you do. We'll be a little lighter on the front end, a little bulkier toward the middle. It's by design this morning. Write this down if you're taking notes. Jesus was in the form of God. Jesus was in the form of God. We learn this from Philippians chapter 2, verse 6a. That's everything that appears before the first comma. In verse 6, look there, who, though he was in the form of God, pause, Jesus was in the form of God. What, What do we learn here? What is packed in these few words for us? Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, takes us deep into eternity past. Friends, what we are to learn from these few words is that Jesus has always been, is today, and will forever be God. There is some theology floating around out there, even in some evangelical circles, that Jesus became the Son at his birth, or Jesus became the Son at the incarnation. False Jesus has always been the Son. Jesus has always existed in the form of God from eternity past. He existed in the form of God. The word form here brings to mind the same words that appear in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, the exact representation or the exact imprint of his being. Jesus has always existed in the form of God. The word form there is the word morphe, and it is a crucial, critical term in this passage. Because Paul wants us to know without the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is divine deity. He's not just another God. He's not just another man. He's not just some good rabbi or teacher. He is God come in the flesh. He is the morphe of God. In the form of God. The exact imprint of his nature. Paul did not use another Greek word here. Schema which is translated fashion. Jesus did not exist in the fashion of God. Fashions change, they come and go. 
You probably noticed that from last week to this week. If not, hang on a little while and you'll notice it next week. Fashions come and fashions go. The form remains the same. Jesus, though he was in the morphe of God, this stresses the inner essence or reality with which Christ, the second member of the triune Godhead, is associated with the Trinity. Jesus is the very essence of God. He is the pre-existent one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God. And the Word was God. He was with God. The Word was God. And then we learn from John 1.14 that the Word became flesh. And He dwelt among us. He lived among us. He tabernacled among us. What the word dwelt meant there in John chapter 1. He tabernacled among us. That in looking into the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can see something of the Father. Because he came from the Father full of grace and truth. When Jesus stepped out of glory, he did not become God, nor did he cease to be God. It's critical that we understand that. He did not exchange his deity for humanity. He never stopped being God. Jesus cannot stop being God. That is his very nature. You cannot remove that from him. It is his essence. Rather, Jesus brought his deity into flesh. Deity tabernacled in flesh when God became a man. The greatest event in history is not when man walked on the moon. The greatest event in history is when God walked on the earth. Number two, write this down. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 6b here. Look back at your Bible. Look at this phrase. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Brothers and sisters, it is paramount that we understand that Jesus had all the rights, all the privileges, all the honor, and all the authority as God. He possessed all those things. He was God in the flesh. One man said, though in his pre-incarnate state he possessed all the eternal qualities of God, he did not consider his status of divine equality, a prize to be selfishly hoarded. That's the emphasis of the text here. Though Jesus had all the rights, all the privileges, all the authority, all the honor as God, Jesus did not consider those things a prize to be selfishly hoarded. In other words, Jesus did not imagine that having equality with God should lead him to hold on to his divine privileges at all cost. Instead, He set some of them aside. We'll talk about that here in just a few moments. Why? Because he was a servant. Jesus himself, in the Gospel of Luke, said, I am among you as one who serves. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus did not grasp onto Divine equality is a prize to be selfishly hoarded because he's a servant. 
and praise and thank God that he is. For greatness, he for us was abased. For glory was veiled. In human likeness, Jesus dwelt on earth. His majesty, though, was concealed. His majesty concealed. The Greek word translated equality. Look there at your Bible. He did not count equality or did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Greek word translated equality there is the word isos. Isos. And it describes things that are exactly equal in size, exactly equal in quantity, exactly equal in quality, exactly equal in number, and exactly equal in character. Jesus is the Isos of God, but yet he's a servant. He's a servant. He's exactly equal in size, quantity, quality, character, and number. But yet he did not count that equality something to be hoarded, something to be grasped after. The English word isomer comes from this Greek word isos here, translated equality there in your Bible. Isomers are chemical molecules. Uh, For some of you that were communications majors like me, just hang in there for just a second. I know this will glaze over some of us. That's okay. Uh, For some of you that are a little bit more scientifically minded, this will check all your boxes and turn on all your switches. All right? Now, here we go. Okay, isomers. I learned something this week here, by the way. Isomers, chemical molecules that vary according to structure from each other, but they're identical according to atomic uh, elements and weights. We could say their forms are different while their essential character is the same. So the word isomorph means equal form. The word isometric means equal measures. An isosceles triangle has equal sides. Christ is equal to God. He existed in the form of God, yet he did not count that equality, did not consider that equality something to be grasped. He set something aside because he's a servant. He's a servant. The first step in the humiliation of Christ was that he did not hold on to equality with God. Equality was there, yet he did not cling to it. There's no question that Jesus was equal to God. No question whatsoever. If you had spent time around Jesus, you would have known that. In his speech and in his actions. As a matter of fact, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. And then he demonstrated that in reality. As a matter of fact, that's the very thing that Jesus was crucified for. Jesus was not crucified for his miracles. Jesus was not crucified for being a good teacher. Jesus was crucified because he said he was God. Though possessing full deity, Jesus, the servant, did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to. In other words, Jesus did not hesitate to set aside his self-willed use of deity when he became a man. He did not set his deity aside. He set his self-willed use of that deity aside. As God, he had all the rights of deity, 
And yet during his incarnate state, he surrendered his right to manifest himself visibly as the God of all splendor and glory in human flesh. In human flesh. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Number three, write this down. We'll kind of park here for a few minutes. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus was in the form of God, morphe. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be hoarded or grasped after. And then Jesus emptied himself, taking the form, there's the same word again, morphe, of a servant. Jesus is God, morphe. Jesus is a servant, morphe. He is both of those things, perfectly both of those things. Look there at verse 7 in your Bible. But emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus poured himself out until there was nothing left to pour out. Matter of fact, the Greek word translated emptied there is the word kenosis. The word kenosis means to pour out. As a matter of fact, we use that term alone to speak to the doctrine of Christ's self-emptying at the Incarnation. Kenosis, he emptied himself. Remember, this is the morphe of God, but when the morphe of God took on human flesh, no one rolled out a red carpet for him. No one welcomed his coming. No one applauded his entry into this sin-riddled world. As a matter of fact, Jesus said of his own people, I came to them, but they received me not. John Wycliffe once wrote, unlike the first Adam, who made a frantic attempt to seize equality with God, Jesus, the last and the perfect Adam, humbled himself and obediently accepted the role of a suffering servant. Adam grasping, trying to attempt to be God. The second Adam emptying himself. Kenosis, pouring himself out as a suffering servant. I just want you to think for just a moment, and, and this, is, this is but the tip of the iceberg here. You could continue this list without a doubt here, but I just want you to think about what Jesus left in eternity and what he came to. Here were a few things that came to mind this week in my study. He left absolute purity. What did he come to? A world that was devastated and riddled with defilement. What did he leave? Absolute perfection. What did he come to? A sin-tainted world marred by the fall. What did he leave? He left glory. What did he come to? He put himself in the frail frame of a human being. What did he leave? Fellowship with the Father. Fellowship with the Father as Jesus hung there on the cross, which we cannot separate the incarnation from the crucifixion. Jesus was born to bleed. Yes, we celebrate the fact that God became a man, but our celebration does not stop there. Our celebration stops at the fact that Jesus was crucified, risen, ruling, and he is soon returning. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? He left the enjoyment of the riches of eternal glory to become poor for our sakes. He left his position 
as the sovereign master of the universe, and he became the servant of men. He left being a ruler, and he came and he subjected himself to the rule and the authority of mortal man. He stepped off his throne to lay in a pathetic, filthy feeding trough. He, the maker of man, became a man. He left eternity to be confined to space and time. He left praise and adoration and adulation and worship and honor. And he came to a world where he was mocked and ridiculed by the lips of sinful men. I mean, the list could go on and on and on and on. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. Now again, it's vitally important to understand that Jesus did not empty himself. He did not divest himself of his godness. He cannot do that. That is his very nature, his character, his essence. He can't do that. Christ did not empty himself of his deity. Rather, the rights and privileges and full manifestation of that deity. Jesus is the coexistent one with the Father and the Spirit. And for him to become less than God would mean that the Trinity would cease to exist. Christ could not become less than who he truly is. Jesus did not exchange his deity for humanity. He retained his divine nature. And what he did is he joined that divine nature to a human nature. 100% God, 100% man. This is what we refer to as the theanthropic one. Theos, God. Anthropos, man. Theanthropic, the God-man. While Jesus never abandoned his deity, he did empty himself of some things while he was on earth. And so let's talk about what some of those things are. Again, this is just a preview here. What did Jesus empty himself of when he came to earth, when he took on human flesh, when he robed himself in our frail form? Well, he set aside his heavenly glory. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, wrote this. He said, The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe, speaking about Jesus, became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, Lewis says, that is the, the hang of the incarnation, then think about how you would like to become a slug or a crab. And even that pales in comparison. Even, even the best of our illustrations degenerate and break down. Jesus gave up the glory of a face-to-face -face relationship with God for the muck of earth. He gave up the adoring presence of angels to be spit upon by men. He gave up his honor. The majesty, capital M, the majesty, allowed himself to be mistreated. He was hated, mocked. Isaiah tells us that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with much grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and yet we esteemed him not. This is the majesty. 
of heaven. He gave up the shining brilliance of heaven's glories and he emptied himself. From time to time in Jesus' earthly ministry, we saw this this glory uh, shine through. We saw this glory peek through. We saw glimpses of it at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus illumined himself in front of a few of his closest followers there. We see a glimpse of his shining glory. We see a glimpse of it in his miracles. We see a glimpse of it in his attitude, in his words. We see a glimpse of it at the cross. We see a glimpse of it at his resurrection and of his ascension. But we will see it full on unmitigated when he parts the clouds and returns to this earth. Jesus emptied himself of the continuous outward manifestation and personal enjoyment of his heavenly glory. He never ceased to be deity. But he set aside something of his heavenly glory. Remember what Jesus prayed just hours before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane? John records it for us in John chapter 17. Jesus prays, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Something of that heavenly glory was set aside. We can understand something of that, but yet something of that remains still a mystery and always will to us. To our finite, human, frail minds and our ability to understand in his emptying or in his kenosis jesus set aside something of his independent authority jesus completely submitted himself to the will of the father and he learned to be a servant paul tells us in philippians 2 8 that jesus was obedient was obedient and and that was was displayed for us, shown to us, there in the garden again, when Jesus said, not what I will, but what you will. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus learned obedience from the things which he suffered, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Jesus set aside his heavenly riches Something of the, the, the riches of heaven. Paul writes for us in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. He was rich, rich beyond measure, yet for our sakes he became poor. Why? So that by his poverty we might become rich. Rich not in dollars and cents, rich not in ink on paper, rich in Christ. You Friends, if you're in Christ here this morning and you just want to know how rich you are, go back and study Ephesians chapter 1 this week. Oh, riches upon riches upon riches upon riches. There are a mountain of riches laid up for us, told to us in Ephesians chapter 1. Who we are and what we have. As a result of our union with Christ. We know that Jesus gave up a favorable relationship with his father. At least on Calvary's cross that is. Right? 
God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was there on Golgotha's hill affixed to wooden beams that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There on the cross, the Father turning his back on his Son. Why have you forsaken me? This is a little bit about what it means for Jesus to have poured himself out, for Jesus to have emptied himself for us. Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Number four, write this down. Jesus humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient to death. Look at verse number eight in your Bible there. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. He condescended himself to take on human flesh. And then he didn't stop there when he took on human flesh. But he became obedient to the point of death. And Paul writes here, comma, even death on a cross. I want you first to think about this phrase, he humbled himself for a moment. Dr. Richard Seltzer, a surgeon, tells of a moment when he caught a transforming glimpse of what happened at Bethlehem. He wrote in his book entitled Mortal Lessons that it reoriented his life or reshaped his life in a very important way. This is what he writes. He says, I stand at the bed where a young woman lies. Her mouth, post-operative, was twisted in palsy. A tiny twig of facial nerve. The one to the muscles of her mouth had been severed in surgery. Dr. Seltzer had followed the curve of her flesh with, with, with vigor Very, very carefully, nevertheless, to remove the tumor from her cheek, he had to sever or he had to cut that little nerve which left her whole face in a state of palsy post-operation. As she comes to after surgery and he is visiting in her room, she looks at him and says, will my mouth always be like this? And he says, yes, I'm sorry to tell you that it will always be so. The nerve has been cut. She nods her head in silence, and her young husband, who is in the room, he smiles, and he looks at his wife with a love so absolutely generous that it stuns the surgeon to silence. All at once, Dr. Seltzer says, I know exactly who that man is, and I understand and instinctively lower my gaze as the bridegroom, this young husband, bends down to kiss his wife. Dr. Seltzer is so close that he notes here that I can see how this young husband has to twist his lips to accommodate hers. Well, friends, once upon a time, the God who bent down and took a handful of dust and shaped humanity and breathed life into it, bent down again. And this time, it was him himself who was reshaped in order to kiss a disfigured earth with the grace of and the breath of new life. 
He showed us in that moment that it's not the staggering height of God that displays his grandeur, but how far he is willing to bend down that so fully displays his glory. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. Jesus descended that we might ascend. He was born that we might be born again. He became a servant that we might become sons. He died that we might live. He humbled himself. But then Paul goes on here and he tells us that he became obedient even to death on a cross. Not just to death, but to death, a horrendous death on the cross. Friends, the cross was reserved for crimes of treason or desertion in the face of an enemy or robbery or piracy or assassination or sedition. So on and so forth, for high crimes. So grotesque was the cross that Cyril once said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. Let the thought of the cross be so far. Interesting to note that Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion, by the way. The victim of crucifixion died a thousand deaths. The sufferings were so frightful that even among the raging passions of war, sometimes pity was excited. But the death of the cross isn't everything. That's not the greatest piece of the picture here. Romans and Greeks crucified tens and thousands of people. Alexander the Great uh, crucified thousands It's what happened at the cross that proved Jesus' ultimate humility and his ultimate obedience. He hung there in our place as our substitute. It was our sin that hung him there. He suffered the excruciating spiritual horror of divine justice as the wrath of God was drained upon his head. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus went all the way, even to death on the cross. That's what Paul wants us to get here. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, but he went all the way, even to death on a cross. Friends, again, we we cannot celebrate the incarnation without a view to the crucifixion. And we cannot celebrate the crucifixion without a view to the resurrection and the ascension And we cannot celebrate the the resurrection and the ascension without a view of the return of Christ. All those things are as sure as the day. Jesus was born to bleed. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Number five and last this morning, jot this down. Jesus is our exalted Redeemer King. He was in the form of God. He did not consider equality with God something to be hoarded. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming uh, obedient to death, even all the way to death on a cross. But Jesus is our exalted Redeemer King. Look at your Bible there. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore... God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Friends, let's break apart uh, verse 9 here for just a few brief moments. God has exalted his name. Of all the names that have risen throughout history, no name is greater than his name. There is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. His name is wonderful. His name is to be blessed. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the door. He's the good shepherd. He's the vine. He's the bread of heaven. He's the living water. He's the light of the world. He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the Lamb of God, the Lily of the Valley, the Rose of Sharon, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Messiah, the Emmanuel, the Son of God, the Son of Man. He is Lord. He is Savior. He's Redeemer. He is the Rock of our salvation. He is the King of kings and the glory of glories. He is the great I am. He is the master and the ruler and the hope of our salvation. His name is wonderful. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Now, friends, let me bring this down to your lap and mine. At the name of Jesus, the name that is greater than all other names, every knee will bow before. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Let me just go ahead and give you an interpretation of that last phrase there. That means everywhere. Everywhere. There is not a nook or a cranny where a place or a place where a person can hide where they will not one day have to bow a knee before the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the one whose name has been highly exalted. Every knee will hit the deck before the Lord Jesus Christ. While some people refuse to acknowledge his right and his reign and his supreme authority, eventually everyone will bow before him. Friends, are you ready for this? I pray that you're already bowed low before him in humble submission to his sovereign authority and rule. He's a good master. He's a good master. Not only will every knee hit the deck, but every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Every single tongue. There will not be a tongue that does not eventually, when all is said and done, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the quintessential confession of Christianity. To know Christ as Savior is to confess him as Lord. Those two cannot be separated. He is Savior and Lord, or he is neither to you. To you, that is. He is those things apart from your response. He is Savior and he is Lord. We don't make him Lord. He demands our soul, our life, our all. Is this Christ preeminent in your life? I pray that that is the case. As we think about the incarnation of Christ and his saving work on the cross for all who would believe, friends, I want to encourage you to uh, spend this holiday Christmas season uh, in your own heart and in your own mind and with your family 
worshiping the name that is above all names, the name that Joseph was told to name his son. That name is Jesus, for he is the one who will save his people from their sins. Has he saved you from your sins? That if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Let's pray. Father, such wonderful truths here, and yet we have only uh, begun to discuss, to study, to think upon, to learn from, to glean from your word. Uh, Lord, the words that are contained here in Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 6 through 11, will take us a lifetime uh, to comprehend. We'll be learning about what these verses mean on into eternity for days without end. Father, thank you for loving the unlovable. Thank you for loving the vile and the wretched. Thank you that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Father, I pray that you give us hearts to love you, to worship you, to honor you, and to praise you all our days. Lord, I pray that if there's any person here this morning who does not know Jesus savingly, that you would deeply penetrate their hearts. God, would you gather your people. We are ready and we are waiting. We're waiting for your return. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.